My name is John. Uh, believe it or not, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, t- today uh, we are going to be looking in the book of Luke chapter 15 uh, as we continue in the series. If you have a Bible, uh, you could turn there. Uh, if you don't have one, you want to borrow one, we have a bunch of Bibles that are outside these doors. You can borrow one. If you, if you want to own one, you don't own one, you can go ahead and take that and nobody's going to look funny at you. Just, just run and don't look the other way. It's okay. You'll be all right. And then uh, we also encourage you to download the Version Bible app because we load a lot of our notes on there. So if you go, if you have that app and you go to the menu or where it says more, you'll see events listed there, and then all of, our, uh, all of the scripture that we're using and all of our notes are loaded on there every single week. All right, so we are in Luke chapter 15. Luke is one of the, what we call the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all telling the story about Jesus from the cradle to the sky, and we are going to look at some of the stories that Jesus shared with groups of people. We call them parables sometimes. Parables uh, are like metaphors. They're, they're stories. They're these mini dramas that Jesus tells, and they have a deeper meaning. Uh, I love metaphors. I love poetry. I love all of that stuff. I love language. Metaphors sometimes can be messy, uh, hard to figure out. There's all of this secret decoder ring stuff happening, and, and that's what makes them fun. The fuzziness and the messiness of the metaphors and the parables is what makes them fun. So we're going to unpack some of this today. Uh, start Starting in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him, him being Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. All right, so this is, the, this is the scene before we start the stories. There's a few different groups of people. Now, uh, the sinners, if you called somebody a sinner in this world, in this economy at this time, uh, it was a really derogatory term. It wasn't a term that was only used in religious culture uh, by any means. It was a term that uh, you used to label somebody, to give them a value judgment, to say uh, that they were missing the, the mark. They weren't towing the line. It was, it was a derogatory statement for them to say, Jesus was was meeting with these sinners. They were religiously outside of the law, all right? They weren't keeping the rules. And so you have people who are not willing to keep the rules, who don't want to be part of the system, and then you have a group of people who are teachers of the rules, of the law, of the system. So this is, this is what's happening here with these two groups. And not only are there sinners, but there's tax collectors. And tax collectors are a special brand of sinner, as we're reading through this story, because tax collectors are Jewish people who are working for Rome. And Rome is not looked at highly, right? So Rome is, uh, is not the system that the Jewish people want to be part of. And now their brothers and sisters, uh, people who belong to their culture, are working for the enemy. And so tax collectors working for Rome are, are betraying their own. You see the two groups of people? that are here right now, it's like, a, it's like thick with like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? We have two distinctly different groups of people here. And Jesus is sharing with a bunch of people who have brokenness. When we talk about sin here in this space, we talk about sin being broken relationship, broken relationship with God, with others, with the world, with ourselves. And so Jesus is talking to broken people. And not only is he 
talking to them, but he's eating with them. And to eat with someone in this culture meant that you approved of them, right? Now, you and I might go out to lunch and have a good time, and you may never invite me to lunch again because you just don't want to be with me anymore, and that's totally understandable. But if you continue to invite me to lunch, then that's probably a sign that you approve of me or you want to be in my company. And so, but this, in this culture, if you ate with anybody even the first time, like if you sat with them and shared a meal, it meant that you were approving. And for the group of people that's, that's watching this scene, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they had a very transactional view of a relationship with God. They thought it worked like this. That like if you do good, then good stuff is going to happen to you. If you do bad, then bad stuff is going to happen to you. But then they kind of upped the ante. And they said, John, listen, man, if you're, doing, if you're doing bad, yes, I'm pointing at you, sir. Yes, if you're doing bad, it might not only bring bad on you, but it might bring bad on me, right? And so I don't want to hang around you, man, because you do bad. I, I do want to hang around you. We should get together soon. But, but, but they have this very transactional view of God. Jesus is connecting them, saying, you belong. See, there's a group of people who think they're on the inside, looking at a group of people who they think are on the outside, and Jesus is saying, you're wrong. These people belong. And they're mad at Jesus. He sa- they say he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And to welcome somebody doesn't mean that you simply accept them, like you accept a package from FedEx at your front door or UPS or whoever your preferred carrier is. If you accept a package, that's fine. It just showed up at your door. But but if you receive something, it's a little bit different. And that's what, that's what Jesus is doing. When he welcomes people, he's receiving them. Like if I invited you over to my house, Trudy, and, and I invited you again, and you felt like, wow, they really take care of me, and, and John's wife is super hospitable, which she is, then, then you are going to feel welcomed and received in my home. And that's why they're mad. Because Jesus is welcoming and receiving people. Jesus was enjoying them. See, he's not just eating with them. He's he's enjoying their company, which is totally weird for these guys. They don't like it one bit. Now, why is this group so important to Jesus? Because people who are on the outside, who are broken, who are disenfranchised, who are disengaged, who are misplaced, who are in a wasteland, who live in denial, that's, that's Jesus' people. That's us. Like, he's always looking for people who are on the outside and making them feel included like they're on the inside. So he's going to tell a few stories here in the next few verses that we're going to read together, and we're going to hear about people who are on the outside, who should be on the inside, uh, in terms of people who are lost and then found. Another way to think about being lost is being disconnected. And Jesus is in the business of connecting people. But it's important for us to know that the people that are watching this scene, and we may even see ourselves in these stories, 
No one really wanted them to be connected. No one really wanted those people, the others, to be connected. They hadn't played by the rules. They didn't pay their dues. They hadn't proven themselves. They hadn't done the hard work. Uh, Maybe they were religious, but they weren't the right brand of religious. They certainly weren't worthy. But here's, here's the thing. Worthiness is never the issue for Jesus. If you read this story in the Bible, cover to cover, you will see story after story where religion says we must do something to be righteous. Religion at its core, like a lot of religions say, you must do something to be righteous. But Jesus says we must know someone to experience abundant life. This is different. So for Jesus, the way forward is to to know him and to experience a deep kind of life. So he's going to tell a bunch of stories here, and we want to see this as we read through these stories. Something is outside, something is inside, and there's rejoicing when the thing that was outside gets brought to the inside. Something's outside, something's inside, and there's rejoicing. We're going to see it over and over. Are you with me? We've only hit two verses so far. Here we go. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, this is funny. Jesus is probably being a little bit sarcastic, a little bit snarky with these people because he's probably talking to a group of people who would never own a hundred sheep and take care of them, right? Like the lowly shepherds did that, right? So he's being funny right off the bat. He's saying, hey, you guys, you know, just imagine you're hanging out with your sheep, all hundred of them. They're going, who is this joker? Now, if you lose one, don't you leave the 99? He says, to, to leave doesn't mean that you ignore the 99. It doesn't mean that you don't think about them anymore. It doesn't mean that you don't care about them. Of course, you care about them deeply. They're, they're your sheep. But you know they're okay right now, and you go for a time over here, and you take care of this one. Now, in the book of Matthew, which is another one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the book of Matthew, Matthew tells this story with, and he uses a a few different words that I think are very interesting. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by the way, we call those three the synoptic Gospels, and John is kind of an outlier. Uh, They all tell stories about Jesus, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke have uh, similar stories that they tell. And every once in a while, you get just a, a little bit different view. The, the word synoptic, by the way, comes from two words. It means same sight, sin optic. And so they're, they're telling a lot of the same stories about Jesus' life. When Matthew tells this story, he says, suppose one of these sheep wanders. And the word wander means deceived. It's most often translated that same word as deceived. So Matthew's spin on this is, what if one of these sheep is deceived? Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that uh, they were part of a group and somebody 
you know, deceived them because I don't know about you, but I do a pretty good job of deceiving myself, right? And so, but, so picture this, whether the sheep uh, wandered off because he was curious or uh, was forced out of the group or, or, or wandered, you know, set his own lure and trap and went after it, whatever, this sheep is deceived. And, and this is the point, that in this group of 100 sheep, if one wanders off, this group over here is not complete until that sheep comes back in. Now, if you have 100 sheep, how do you notice one is missing? You, you count, right? The only way you're going to know that one of your sheep is gone in, in 100 is if you're counting your sheep all the time. Does anybody have more than two children? <laughs> have you ever been on a playground with your children, right? What are you doing? If you have three, four, five kids, the whole time you're counting your kids. You're going, where's your brother? Where's your, where's your sister? Where'd you do? Where'd they go? Are they in the slide? Where'd they go? Are they in the mirror? Get over here. Wait, grab them. They're getting up. You're always counting you're always taking care of your kids. Now, it's easy to look at this story and to blame the dumb sheep for wandering off. And oftentimes when we talk about sheep in, in the Bible stories, we talk about dumb sheep. Sheep who just have their own mind, who wander off, do what they want to do. But in this story, I think some of the onus is probably on the shepherd. Because to know that your sheep are there and to know that all your sheep are cared for, you have to constantly be counting. I think that's, that's super important. Now, it goes on, it says, and when he finds it, when he finds the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. I've never raised sheep. My brothers did. They were in 4-H. There's no way I'm putting a sheep on my shoulders. Like, have you ever, like, you get close to them sometimes, and you think you're going to get kicked square in the jaw. Like, I, 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 I was so curious about how to put a sheep on your shoulders that I Googled it this week, and I actually read a few websites because I get really easily distracted like that and follow link to link to link and about how you put a sheep on your shoulders. Like, it's not a whole process. Like, they, it doesn't just happen. You got to grab them by the jaw and stick their head up in the air and grab their back leg and, uh, like, and they might kick you in the face. They might hurt you. I think sometimes when you're caring for sheep, it's a struggle and it's hard work to make sure that everybody is together, to make sure that everybody feels like they belong, to make sure that everybody is connected. It's, it's hard work. That lost sheep doesn't just jump into the owner's hands. And he goes on. He says he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent, repent, turn back, to, to belong again, to go back the way that you came from. Ah, that's fantastic. 
Now, we're going to talk a lot about rejoicing in these stories, and Luke uses this word rejoice more than any of the other gospel writers. And here's the deal. Where, where there's found sheep, there's good stories, and where there's good stories, there's rejoicing. Where there's rejoicing, there's singing, and there's dancing, and there's partying, and there's celebration. All right. Jesus goes on. He says, that's just one story. I got another story for you. Suppose a woman has 10 coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, what did that coin do to get back with the other coins? What did the lost coin do? Well, I don't know what kind of magic coins you have, but my lost coin would do nothing. It rolled out the door, or it, it dropped through the floor, or it's in the dirt somewhere, but the coin didn't do anything to get back into the collection. So I think the emphasis in this story is this, this thorough, ridiculous, turn-the-house-upside-down search that's going on for this coin. The coin was no longer lost after the owner found it and restored it to its place. So in both of these first two stories that Jesus is sharing with this group of people who think they're on the outside, who are pointing the finger at the outsiders, with these first two stories, the emphasis is on the searching and the finding and the care and the returning and the need to belong. And all of the, all of the onus is on the owner and the shepherd in these first two stories. Now, it's easy to think, uh, like, oh, well, maybe he's talking about the church here, but, but the church had yet to be established at this point. He's talking about humanity. He's talking about you and I. He's talking about the role that you and I play to make sure that there's no outside and inside, and the role that you and I play to make sure that everybody feels like they're not disconnected, but rather they're connected. In both of these stories, we get that. Okay, so then he goes on. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to a field to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. I have heard and or read the story a bajillion times. But this week, when I read this story, 
That jumped off the page to me, that last line. But no one gave him anything. Like, what kind of a world is it where somebody is there starving and nobody does anything about it? Where somebody is in that great of need and nobody does anything about it. Maybe they thought, well, he's always asking for food. My goodness, I fed this guy so many times, I'm done. Or maybe they thought, you know what, like, if I give him a little bit, then he's going to come back asking for more. Or maybe they thought it wasn't a wise use of their time, and, and maybe if they just kind of ignored him that everything was going to be okay. But at this point in the story, when we see no one give him anything, I think you and I are supposed to be sad and say, oh, how does that happen? Now, where is the food? Like, he's starving. There's no food where he is. There's a famine, but where is their food? Any guesses? Home. It's like where he came from. That's where the food is. My youngest daughter recently moved out of the house, I think. And, and uh, I... It, I love having her around, though. She comes around a lot. She comes to visit. I, I like to think that the, the first reason that she comes to visit often is because she enjoys our company, um, but also we have food, right? It's like when the food is there, the kids are going to come back home. So there's food back at where he came from. And I think one of the underlying messages that we're supposed to see in this, one of the kind of underneath the surface things that we pick up with this parable, with this metaphor, is that starvation happens away from the family. Like on the outside of the family, that's where things go bad. So when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. My dad is so generous. He loves the people who work for him so much that there's food to spare. He goes on, he says, uh, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again he was lost and he's found and so they began to celebrate one of the most endearing things in that that little snippet of the passage to me is how the son is rehearsing his speech he says this is what i'm going to say to my dad and you could hear him just rehearsing it as he's walking back home, just saying the words over and over. Because, I mean, honestly, if we're on the outside of a relationship and we want on the inside of that relationship, we rehearse our speeches, right? Like, you might have a speech sometime that goes like, Honey, I am sorry that I stayed out late with the guys. 
and played poker and video games and ate cheesy puffs and made fools of ourselves while you stayed here with the six children we have who have the flu. I'm really sorry. <laughs> like, you're going to practice that speech, right? You're going to know every word of that speech when you go home. Now, the great thing about this is that the son rehearses his speech and he starts to spit it out exactly like he practiced it and he doesn't even get to finish. The father interrupts him in this story. There should be an ellipsis at the end of verse 21. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's going to keep going. There's more of that speech. We heard it earlier. But dot, dot, dot. Then the father says, man, it's celebration time. But just for a minute, and just think about our heavenly father. Like in our limited knowledge that we have of him, doesn't it seem like the kind of thing that he would do is to interrupt our speeches? Like that's what he does. He interrupts the speech with an amazing display of love. I think it's fantastic. It's not the end of the story. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, rejoicing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. That brother sounds pretty angry, but if I'm honest, if you're honest, if we're honest, Don't we kind of understand where he's coming from a little bit? I mean, my goodness. I kept all the rules. I was his perfect son. I I never got in trouble. And then this idiot goes out and just blows everything, everything that he shouldn't have even had in the first place. And now you just treat him like a king. Yeah, I think I might feel a little bit angry too. So I see myself in this story. Now, But to think about the depth of his anger, think about exactly what has happened here. In in this culture, if if there was going to be an inheritance handed out, then somebody had to die. A father had to die, but that's not what happens in this case. And, And how that inheritance is distributed is that in this case with two sons, the oldest son would get twice the inheritance of the younger son. All right, so two times the inheritance, but early on, before the property has had a chance to grow and value and, and they amass more wealth, the father says, I'm going to distribute everything right now. Oh, yeah, that would make anybody angry. You know, it's, it's funny. We call this sometimes the prodigal son. We gave it that name. It, it doesn't say prodigal in here. We gave it that name. But, but really, this is not the story of just one son. This is the story of two sons. 
and, and a father's love for both of these sons. For some reason, it, it's interesting when it says that the father divided his property. The word property is the Greek word bios. Bios is word word of biology. We study life, organisms. Like the father ripped his life apart for these sons. Now, I like to picture the end of the story like this. There's, there's a room. It's about this size and about this many people in it. We're all rejoicing. There's partying. There's dancing. There's celebration, fat and calf and barbecue, right? We're all having a great time. And there's a big window on the side. And we're all looking out this window and there's this like grassy knoll and these manicured gardens and it's a beautiful scene. And, and there's the oldest son is standing outside of the party with his arms crossed, stomping his feet, shouting things. And we can read those lips. We know what he's saying. And he's given the occasional inappropriate hand gesture and he's he's standing outside and everybody's watching oh my goodness look at this son and then they and then everybody here in the room we we see the father and we go oh no what's he gonna do how's he gonna handle this now the father has every right in this story to go out there and say you idiot you're bringing shame upon yourself shame upon the family you're disrespecting me get off the property get out of here You can't do this. But no, that's not what we see. The father who ran down the road, hiked up his tunic and ran down the road to his younger son, goes outside, and we watch him walk to the oldest son. And he says, my son... You are always with me. And everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. It's this amazing display of meekness. This is what meekness is. The father had all of the power in the world to knock him silly to kingdom come. But he didn't. The Bible says he went out and he pleaded with him. And that word pleaded comes from uh, a group of words uh, where the Greek word paraclete comes from. We, we talk about the Holy Spirit being a paraclete. The word paraclete means like counselor or like came alongside him. And so the father takes on that role. He goes and he pleads, he counsels with, he listens. He has this discussion with his son. Now, this is the... This is the saddest part of the story for me because this is the ending. This, this is the end of the story. Like if we were writing a children's book, we would want to wrap this thing up a little bit more tidy. We'd want to say that they hugged and kissed and, and the son said, oh, gee, dad, shucks, and came inside and they had cupcakes and like it, everything was fantastic. But no, this story ends with a son who was stuck 
in a system of beliefs who's unwilling to give up his rights, who's unwilling to see things differently, who's unwilling to change the way that he's always thought, who's unwilling to see his brother through the eyes of love, who's unwilling to budge, who's super stubborn. That's how the story ends. The irony really about, about this story is that um, the lost brother wasn't the only wasn't the youngest son it was the older son was lost as well they both needed to be found they both needed to be connected to the father in a new way and so we see in this story there's really two ways to put ourselves outside of everything that the father is offering us and the first way is that we we disobey everything uh, we disown the system we become self-righteous self-important and superior the second way, the second way to be outside of everything the Father offers is to obey everything, to follow the way of the system, and to become self-righteous, self-important, and superior. So the frivolous life and the self-centered religiosity, these are both spiritual wastelands. And this is one of the things that I think Jesus is trying to teach us with these stories. The sheep was deceived, the coin fell through the cracks, and the sons were self-important and and unaware. And all of these stories are about being on the outside and needing connection. When the connection happens, man, there's rejoicing. God is all about that. Which, by the way, why do we refer to these stories in the negative? Why is it the lost sheep? Because didn't it get found in the story? Why is it the lost coin? I'm pretty sure it got found. Why is it the lost son? I'm pretty sure he got welcomed in. So I think when we look at these stories, we're we're supposed to hear stories. I mean, we named them that. We should rename them. It's the story of the found sheep and the found coin and the found son. It's rejoicing. Now, true confessions. I, I see myself in this story. Like if I'm going to ask you to play the game of do you see yourself in the story, which I am asking, I have to give a little bit of a true confession. Yeah. This is where it goes bad for me. Um, the first tattoo I ever got uh, was the word Freedom. The reason I got that is because it was re- a reaction against a religious system that I grew up in. Now, if I'm ever lying on somebody's couch in a dimly lit office asking for counsel, which I may or may not do all the time, if I'm on that couch, they would probably tell me, and they have, that I was a victim of spiritual abuse, of religious abuse. But that doesn't give me the right to be a jerk. And sometimes I am. See, because sometimes I run into people 
who say they're on the inside, but the things that they say and the way that they act and the things that they do, they, it sometimes reminds me, even, even it'll just have this little hint and it'll remind me of where I came from and that group of people that I was part of that I had this disdain for. And so I automatically put those people in a box and I say, you know what? I don't, I don't have the time for you. I don't have the time for this. Now, it's one thing to set up healthy boundaries and all of that. Yeah, I get that. But, but what's going on in here for me sometimes is, is, is nasty. So, yeah, I, I see myself in this story. I don't know where you see yourself. Actually, I think I've been everything in this story at one point or another. But everyone, everyone is worthy of being connected in these stories. And I think these stories are screaming to us, is there room in our lives for more people to belong, for more people to be connected, for more people to be on the inside? And not only a number of people, but a certain kind of people, a certain brand of people, a certain way of thinking. Like, is there room? Can we, can we go there? I think these stories are, are screaming that to us. And I think they're screaming, who is the one that we are going to be generous with? Who is the one that we're going to go after? Who is the one who is disconnected and we need to help them feel connected? Because I'm, I'm certain that every single one of us has a one in our life. There is somebody that our, our particular brand of generosity and mercy and meekness and compassion is going to connect that person. I really believe that. And so I think I think that's what God wants to ask us today is who are we going to go after? And I think finally he's, going, he's asking this. He's saying, Lakeside, your mission statement is to transform as many people as possible into passionate and productive followers of Jesus. If that came true, if as many people as possible showed up here, would you be ready? We're going to talk about that one in more depth next week. Would you pray with me? Lord, thanks for these stories. Thanks for your love, for your patience, for your kindness, for your compassion, for your mercy, for your meekness, your pursuit. Lord, we see ourselves in these stories, and man, we want to be a place where people feel like they belong, a place where they feel like they can belong uh, before they believe they belong just because we want to be that kind of people. So help us to become compassionate and help us pay attention and help us count and care for everyone. Lord, we're going to give an offering to you now, and we're We ask that you would do amazing things with this, that you would surprise us with amazing things, God, as we we love this community, as we welcome this community around us. Lord, mobilize us, stretch us, grow us, and make us the kind of people that are very proactive in helping people to belong. That's, That's just one of the many reasons we give to you now, Lord. We love you. Amen.